Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this morning and just thank you for the ability for all of us to be able to gather together and to worship you, to encourage one another, and then, Lord, to read from your scriptures. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to read from the word that you have given us. We don't have to guess about who you are. We don't have to guess about how we relate with you. Lord, you have revealed your truth to us. That is such a gift. I pray today, Lord, as we read from your word, as we think about it, that, Lord, you would be glorified. That, Lord, as a result of studying your word this morning, that all of our our faith, Lord, would be built up. That we would have a bigger view of who you are, Lord, that you would help us to be more in love with you. And Lord, this morning, I pray for the scriptures that we're gonna read and Lord, that you would just help us to be faithful in this town, Lord, to proclaim the true savior. Your word tells us about our savior, Jesus. Lord, help us to be a church that's faithful to proclaim him. Lord, open our eyes to the lostness of those around us. And Lord, give us the heart of Jesus that we're going to read about today. Lord, a heart that weeps over those who do not know you. Pray that you would do this in our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with a question. Uh, how, How do you think the average person would define the word religion. The word religion. I I think most people would say, hey, a religion is some sort of system that helps people get to God, all right? That a religion believes in some God or some divine power or being, and this religion helps us somehow to relate with this God, this God has some sort of power over our destiny or our future or our circumstances. And so we need some sort of system to get to this God or relate to this God or talk to him or, or whatever it is. But if you think about it and if you think long and hard about it, I, I think religion can be quite dangerous. Uh, most major religions in the world claim exclusivity meaning that they believe that their religion is the only way to relate to their God. You know, this, the rise of liberalism that says that all religions lead to God and, you know, whatever you feel is best. Um, that idea, that's, a, that's really in history, it's a recent development in human thought and is really rejected by most people around the globe, right? They're a loud bunch of people, but most people don't agree with their sentiments. So if all of these major religions in the world claim exclusivity, then what that means is most of them are wrong, right? And so some would say that this very fact, that all these major religions of the world claim exclusivity, is an apologetic for atheism. It's a reason why some don't believe that there's a God. They say, see, there's all these different religions, and that just shows us that religion is just a human invention Um, a way for us to try to make sense of the world or make us feel better about ourselves. But the Bible has something to say about this, why this is the case. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11. 
God says to us that, that God has also put eternity in man's heart. He's put something in us that knows that this is not all there is. That there is something beyond the grave. That there is a God. He's put that in our hearts. But it says, but no one can discover the work of God. And what he's done from the beginning to the end. So we know in our souls that there is a God. And we try to make sense of that. But for some reason, we've been blinded from the truth to it. And we'll talk about that in a second. Another reason why I think religion can be dangerous is because religion can be manipulative. If God has put eternity on our hearts, so if we know there's something out there in our souls, and most of us are open to some sort of religious system that connects us with that God, then it's easy for false teachers and false religions to use this about us to manipulate us, to make us do things that we shouldn't. Again, for many atheists, this is one of the reasons why they have problems with religion, because many of history's most heinous crimes against humanity has been done in the name of a religion or a God. But do you know what I think is most dangerous? I think what is most dangerous is when a religion is formed based on what this book has to say, the Bible. And yet, that religion misses what this book says. I believe this is most dangerous because we believe that this book the word, is the word of God, that the Bible does contain the exclusive truth on how we relate to God. So we believe everything this book says. And so when a religion is formed around this book, but it actually misses what this book has to say, it can be the most deceptive of all. I believe there are many different religions Systems on how we get to God that use this book that might carry the title of Christianity, but they completely miss what the Bible has to say is the way that we relate with God. And this morning, I want to read about some people that encounter Jesus who, although they know the content of what's in this book, they completely miss the message of this book. Of the scriptures. But before we read our passage this morning in Luke 19 is where we're going to be. Before we, we go there, here's what I want to do first. I just want to make it crystal clear what the message of the scriptures is. That so many miss. Because we believe this book has a singular message. We believe it has a singular storyline. And what I want to do is I just want to make it clear. What is this kind of meta-narrative, the overall narrative of Scripture? What is the message it's trying to communicate to us? Because we need to make sure that is clear so we can understand the danger of a religion that misses that message. So we'll do this quick. The first pages of the Bible declare that God created everyone in his image. Every male and female, doesn't matter what they look like, he made them all in his image to worship him with equal dignity and equal worth. But only three chapters into the Bible do we learn that humanity rejects God. It says, we do not want to worship you. We do not want to live for you. We'd rather do our own thing. So mankind commits treason against God's kingdom. It says, we don't want you to be our king. So this was a grave sin. It breaks all of creation. Mankind is now enemies with God. 
And we were no longer allowed to be in his presence. So although eternity was set on our hearts, although we know in our souls there's something out there, we were now blinded to how we relate with God. So this is why we have all these religions trying to figure out how do we relate. And since mankind was alienated from God, we now have corrupt, selfish hearts that do wicked and evil, selfish things, which is why there's so much brokenness and pain and evil in this world. And every human being, because of our sin against God, deserves death. But God, because he's merciful, set out on a plan to redeem mankind from their sin and rebellion, to restore that relationship. So what he does first is he raises up the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. This is a lot of your Old Testament here, okay? He raises up the nation of Israel and he gives them a law. He gives them a religious system. And the problem was that by God's design, by God's design, the law was impossible to keep. It was impossible to keep. The religious system was not designed to be the way to God. It was designed to show us that no religious system would be sufficient to allow sinful mankind to get to a holy and righteous God. That was the point of the law. Religion doesn't work. You're not going to be able to do a system to kind of claw your way to me. God is a merciful God, but he's a just God. He cannot allow treason against his kingdom to go unpunished. A religious system wasn't going to solve the problem. The religious system simply helps us identify our problem. So throughout the Old Testament, as his people were seeking to follow this law, God kept on revealing to them. We just read one in Psalm 118 here, right? That it was not the law that was going to save them from their sin, but it was going to be a Messiah, a Savior that God would send to them. And so when the time was right, the Messiah arrives, and it's Jesus. And he's not just a man, but he's the Son of God. It's God himself became a human being to deliver his people. And because God is just, he must punish sin. But he's merciful. At the very same time, this was his plan. Here's how he was going to meet both, justice and mercy. See, Jesus, God himself, would live a life without sin as a human being. And therefore not be deserving of death. But Jesus did not come just to be an example to us. No, he came to be our savior. So he offered himself to die in our place, to take the judgment that we deserve for our sin, our treason against God. He takes it in our place. So he died on a cross, not because he deserved death, but because we deserve death. And God took our sin and he places it on Jesus and allowed Jesus to take the judgment that we deserve. But God not only placed our sin on Jesus, he then places the righteousness of Jesus on us. So for those who trust in Christ, not only have we had our sin removed, but we've gained righteousness. It's as if we've fulfilled the law. It's as if we completed the religious system. It's been checked off for us because Christ did it. It was not us who got ourselves to God. It was God who came down to get us. 
And all of this is sealed and verified by the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll celebrate next week. Jesus died and he was buried, but three days later, he was raised from the dead, verifying that the power of death, the judgment of God has been fulfilled. The judgment of death that we deserve for our sin has been fully satisfied because Jesus walks out of the grave. And so now God has established his church. He has believers, people he's adopted into his family, which comprises of everyone who believes all of this about God and Jesus and trusts in that. So people who believe that their only hope is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled it on my behalf. That's the church. And what we do now is we wait. Because we know that one day Jesus will return. And at his return, everyone who had not trusted in Christ will be judged because they're still in their sins. And everyone who had trusted in Christ will live forever in God's kingdom where sin will be no more and tears will be no more and there won't be any more pain for all of eternity will be in God's kingdom. This is the message of the Bible. Very quick. It's not about how we get to God. It's about how God came down for us. And notice the climax of the message. It's the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Without the cross and without the resurrection of Jesus, mankind is left in impossible in an impossible religious system just trying to claw their way to God, hoping maybe this is the right one. Maybe these are the laws I should follow. Maybe these are the pillars I should do. Maybe these are the things that I need to do to get myself to God. Without the cross and resurrection, that's where we're at. Religion without the cross and resurrection is dangerous. It's got no answer for our sinful and inconsistent hearts. It's easily manipulate, it easily manipulates us. It's just behavior control. And the worst part is it leads people to death and judgment. So this morning, I said I wanted to read about some people that Jesus encountered who know the scriptures, but they missed the message. So we're gonna read the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. It's when the church typically commemorates and remembers when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and within that week he would be arrested and tried and he would be executed on the cross and three days later he'd be raised from the grave. And so we're going to read a passage about Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem where he is about to initiate the climax of all of history. But in our passage, we see that when Jesus enters into the city, he weeps because they've completely missed what is happening in their midst. As Jesus enters the holy city of Jerusalem, we'll see that the religion of God's people caused them to miss their Savior. Look at this in Luke 19. I'm going to read for us verses 28 to 44. It says this, And when Jesus had said these things, he was doing some teaching along his way to Jerusalem, 
he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day Jerusalem, the holy city, wouldn't have you known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, Surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, as we read this account of Jesus entering Jerusalem, uh, what I want us to do is I want us to look at uh, what Jesus has to say to the crowd's who were praising him, and to the Pharisees who weren't so pleased. So I want to look at these two interactions. So let's first look at the crowds. All right, so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on a cult. That's a really important detail that Luke gives us. We actually get it in all of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus because the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah will ride into the holy city on a cult. That that's going to happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Thank Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The fowl of a donkey. So the scriptures, they've revealed these things that are happening beforehand. And so Jesus is riding on a colt. Look at verse 37 and 38 again, Luke 19. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, saying, I want you to look at these quotes, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What these disciples were shouting is a direct quote from Psalm 118, which Kathy just read from us. It's a psalm of procession. So Psalm 118, verse 26, is what they just shouted to Jesus. And other accounts of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, in the book of John, 
They record, uh, they don't just say the multitudes of Jesus' disciples, but they talk about the crowds that were praising Jesus, both as he was going into Jerusalem and as he entered in. And these accounts say that they are shouting the word, Hosanna, Hosanna, you may have heard that. We just sang a song called Hosanna. All Hosanna means it's Hebrew for save us, we pray. Save us, we pray, Hosanna, that's Hebrew, for save us, we pray. That comes straight out of Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, Hosanna. So the people of the holy city, listen, had knowledge of the scriptures. They knew Psalm 118 was a messianic prophecy. They're shouting that thing as Jesus is riding into the city. They were seeing prophecy being fulfilled before their very eyes as their king, their Messiah, rode in on a cult into the city to bring salvation. So listen, it would seem that these people had not missed the message of Scripture. But if that was the case, why is verse 42 Jesus' response to their praise and their declaration that peace had come? Look at verse 42 again. Jesus says, would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. The people are declaring that peace has come now that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying, you don't know what makes for peace. See, the Jews of the day, we talked about this last week, the Jews of the day that inhabited Jerusalem, and, and for many of Jesus' followers, they didn't understand that the salvation they needed was from themselves, from their own sin. No, they believed their primary problem was Rome, who had occupied Jerusalem, the enemies of the Jewish nation. And the peace that they were proclaiming was the peace that they will have when the Messiah establishes the kingdom of God and kicks out the enemies. And so, yes, Jesus was there to begin to establish his kingdom, but he wasn't offering at this point a salvation from Rome. He was there to die on a cross and bring salvation from their sin. See, the problem here with the religion of the day was it misled the people to believe that their problem was external, not internal. They missed the message of scriptures because they missed the problem. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to us because of the bad news that although we might have many external problems and although God does care about those problems, our primary problem is inside of us. It's our sinful hearts that have rebelled against God. So we as humans, we have this tendency to believe that we would actually be better people if our external problems resolve themselves. Right? My marriage would be better if my husband noticed me or my wife respected me. I'd be more content in life if my boss was a better manager. I, I would be more generous if I weren't in so much debt or if I lived in a less expensive area. I, I wouldn't be as angry and frustrated all the time if my kids would just listen to me. But the danger with seeing our primary problem as external and not internal, the danger with missing the problem is we miss the Savior. I wonder how many people in this crowd shouting Hosanna 
were later in the crowd a week later shouting, crucify him, when they realized he wasn't in Jerusalem for what they thought. Move on to the Pharisees. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the colt, and he was being praised by all of these people. The Pharisees weren't very pleased. Just as a reminder, the Pharisees were these very strict, very conservative religious leaders in the Jewish faith. These guys knew the Old Testament very well. They were Old Testament scholars. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And therefore, by receiving the praises of the crowd and accepting the shouts of Hosanna, the Pharisees felt this was blasphemous. You're receiving praise as if you're the Messiah, but you're not. So teacher, rebuke your disciples. Although God the Father had announced from heaven the identity of Jesus at his baptism, although Jesus performed miracles that were indicative of the coming of the kingdom of God, although Jesus was fulfilling prophecy before their very eyes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who were Old Testament scholars, missed the Savior. Jesus says to them in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. All of creation has been groaning in its brokenness for this moment where the Messiah would come into Jerusalem to make available the redeeming grace of God. This is the climax of all of history. Even the rocks are gonna testify to this one. And listen, if if we miss the problem, then we are going to miss the Savior. If we believe that our problem is mainly outside of us and not inside of us, then we're going to look to God to deal with our circumstances and not look to God to deal with our hearts. Maybe this is one of the most dangerous religions of all. Make sure you read your Bible. Make sure you attend church. Make sure you keep your mouth clean. Make sure you don't drink too much. Make sure you give to the poor. And above all, make sure you pray. Do these things. Keep the religious system. Then God will take care of your circumstances. He will save you from your external problems. Might be the most dangerous religion of the day. Right? God, I feel like I've done everything that you've asked of me. Why is my spouse still the way that they are? But we, we don't need to be saved from our lousy spouse. We need to be saved from our heart that seeks to be served and not serve. We need to be saved from a heart that puts us at the center of marriage, a heart that says, I will be better once my spouse is better. And Jesus is riding on a colt into Jerusalem so he can suffer and die on a cross for our sins so he can redeem our hearts and forgive us and help us to begin to change. Does God care about our marriages? Absolutely. Does he care about the conduct of your spouse? Absolutely. Can you pray? Should you pray about that? Of course. But we must always understand that the message of the scriptures is that our problem is internal before it's external. And Jesus is our savior because he went to the cross to save us from our own sin. 
God, I feel like I've done everything that you've asked of me. Why do I still not have the disposable income that it seems like everybody around here has? But we don't need to be saved from our financial situation. We need to be saved from a heart of greed and the belief that we'll be satisfied once we have it. Jesus is riding on a colt into Jerusalem so he can suffer and die on a cross for our sin. So he can redeem our hearts and forgive them and begin to help us change. Does God care about our finances? Absolutely. Should we pray to him about it? Of course we should. But our problem is internal before external. And Jesus is our savior because he went to the cross to save us from our own sin. And we can just repeat this, right? God, I feel like I've done everything you've asked me. Why am I still struggling with anxiety? I pray to you about this. Why am I always so fearful? But at the end of the day, anxiety is not what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from a heart that struggles with belief and fear. And Jesus is riding on a colt into Jerusalem so he can purchase your life on the cross, so he can redeem your heart and give you assurance that this life is not all there is, but the best is yet to come in God's kingdom. Does God care about our anxiety? Absolutely. He says, cast your cares on me because I do care for you. But the solution to our problem is not the reduction of our external circumstances beyond our control. It is our Savior who has rescued us from our greatest fears and the brokenness of this life. See, when we miss the problem, we miss the Savior. And listen, when we miss the Savior, we miss the whole point of our religion. And what's Jesus' response to this? We read it in verse 41 to 44. I'll read it again. Because when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, Hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. These are harsh words. What we see here is Jesus is speaking directly to the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus is telling them exactly what is going to happen to them 40 years later. In AD 70, when the Romans came, set up a barricade around that entire city, hemmed them in, and burned the whole thing to the ground, and did not leave one stone on the other. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go stand on top of the pile of stones that used to be the temple, that they burned down, that had knocked the, t- the stones off the side of the temple mount. Jesus weeps because Jesus knows the judgment that Jerusalem will endure for missing the Savior. That's why he's weeping as he's coming in. They've missed him. And the message of our religion, the message of the Bible, is that God has created us to worship him, and we have said no. And so we deserve God's judgment. But in God's 
grace and in his mercy, he has reached down to us in and through Jesus and made a way that we could be reconciled to him. He has made a way that we could live our lives in the way that he has created us to. He's made a way that we could live for all of eternity with him in his kingdom. But if someone does not trust what Christ has done for them, if they don't repent of their true problem, which is their sin, then they'll experience the judgment of God, no matter how religious they are. Just like Jerusalem. They, like Christ, will endure the wrath of God, but they will not walk out of the grave. And they will spend eternity suffering for their sin. Right? The, the judgment of God is an awful thing that is not to be minimized. The question for us is this, do we weep over those who do not know their Savior? So two takeaways from this. Here's the first one. This is, this is why we say we as Grace Hill Church are a Christ-centered church. Because if we have a message to proclaim that does not contain the climax of all of history, if we have something to say that does not contain the cross and resurrection, if we are not faithful to boldly declare, even when people feel it's offensive, what the true problem is and who the true Savior is, if all we're about is helping you live a better, more moral life, then we are nothing but a false therapy session. A dangerous religion. Second takeaway is being a faithful church and being faithful followers of Jesus means we must make known the true Savior. We've got to make known the true Savior to our town. Our religious activities as Christians should be to, to worship God in response to what he has done for us in and through Jesus Christ and to worship God by making known the Savior to those who are lost. But that should be our religion. And this is, a, I think, a tough question for us, but what emotional response do we experience when we think of the people that we know who do not know their Savior? Are we indifferent? Or do we, like Jesus, weep? And the question that we need to answer both individually and corporately as a church is, how are we going to make the Savior known? Right? How are you personally going to make the Savior known to those around you? And we could start with Easter next week. Right? This is just a time of year where a lot of people are open to going church when they normally don't go. It's a great time to invite neighbors and friends to bring them to hear the gospel clearly presented, which is what we plan on doing because it's the climax of all of history. We don't have a message if we don't have the cross and resurrection. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And so the, who are you going to invite to bring here to, to see other people who believe in this and be encouraged in that. But it, it goes beyond Easter, right? Who in our lives is walking towards the judgment of God? That's what we need to think about because think about this, guys. What grace God has shown them that they know someone who knows the Savior. That person you know that's walking towards the judgment of God 
knows somebody, that'd be you, who knows the Savior. There are millions of people around the world who can't say that. And so as we close our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you just a minute and I want to pray for us, but I want you to just think of those people that you know. It could be neighbors, it could be coworkers, it could be friends, family, whoever. Who are those people that you know that do not know their Savior? I just want you to think of their names, people that you could invite to come here for Easter, people that you could begin to intentionally engage, people that you could begin just to pray for and pray for your own heart towards them, that God would give you the heart of Jesus, that you would weep over them. So I'm gonna give you a minute just silently. Would you just think of those people, bring those names to the surface, and then I would like for us to pray for them. So take a minute and do that. Father, we know that the hope of the world is the church. The people that you have saved and rescued and then sent on a mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not know you. That is the hope of the world. Your plan A, your only plan to get The gospel to those who do not know the gospel is the church. It's us. And so, Lord, just pray that we would be faithful to tell people about the Savior, that we would be faithful to proclaim what the real problem is and how the real Savior has rescued us from our own sin. Lord, protect us from meaningless, dangerous religion. But Lord, help us to worship you by proclaiming loudly and boldly what you have done to rescue us. So Lord, we pray for these names that we have just thought of. Lord, you heard every one of them. And we pray, Father, that you, by your spirit, would begin to do things to position them to hear the gospel. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to invite people to come next week on Easter to hear the gospel. Lord, beyond Easter, I pray that we would be faithful people to love our neighbors, to love our coworkers and our friends and our family and anyone else we encounter. And Lord, to be willing and ready to declare the hope that's within us. But Lord, I think my greatest prayer is this, Lord. Would you just begin to transform our hearts so that, Lord, when we see lostness, that, Lord, we weep. So, Lord, would you just do a mighty work in this town? Would you use this church, Lord, to proclaim the gospel to this town, Lord? Would you save many? 
you glorify yourself through what we do? Lord, help us to stay faithful. We love you, Lord. We pray, Lord, as we end our time singing to you, that it would just be sweet aroma to you. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.